Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 8 of the Irish Photography Podcast. And today we're talking about the evolution of the tripod and post-processing. Is it cheating or not? I don't know who you are, but welcome to the Irish Photography Podcast. Sit back, relax, and listen about cameras, gear, settings, stories, and all things photography. Join Dermot and Darren on Ireland's Best Photography Podcast. Let's go. And uh, <laughs> and you're very welcome to the next episode of the Irish Photography Podcast. I'm Darren, I'm your host this week, and I'm joined by my buddy in Limerick, Dermot. How the hell are you, buddy? Yeah, I'm doing absolutely great, man. Having a great week so far, getting to test out some new gear for Canon Ireland. So at the moment, I currently have in my hands the Canon M6 Mark II. So I've been taking it out for the last few days, testing on product photography, landscape photography, portrait photography. And tomorrow now I'll be doing one of those uh, 4K time-lapse features. So yeah, I'm really putting the camera to its full potential and putting it through all these tests to see how it uh, stands the test of my tests. <laughs> That's class, man. You know, and something interesting about that camera is that it has a, an add-on, a bolt-on, an EVF that you can stick onto the top of it. Have you used that much or are you using the back of the screen? Oh... I'll talk about it in the video. <laughs> you'll see. Mm, you'll okay. see it. It's 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 a perplexing piece of uh, engineering. I'll leave it at that for now. Mm. Mm. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Because I was looking at it, wondering how it would actually pan out. So I'm looking forward to seeing that video. Yeah, looking forward to seeing that. So come here, man. We're going to talk about and continue on our topic of the evolution of photography. And this week, it's the term at uh, the turn of the tripod. What do you know about tripods? Do you know much? <laughs> Besides having loads of them, of course. <laughs> All right. Do you know, you drive a car, yeah? I do. You're good at driving a car. I am. But you know how to work it? What works underneath the bonnet? <laughs> I know how to open the bonnet to put in water. Yeah, and the drive shaft and uh, the LSD. And the LSD? Gears. All the cars are on acid now, eh? <laughs> Limited slip diff. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I understand how tripods work. I know how to use them, but I wouldn't know too much about them. Um, the whole history side of things, uh, we didn't really do that in college. So I'm really flying blind here tonight. So, but I'm sure you have all this lovely, juicy information for me to uh, listen to. I hope. I, I I hope so too, because it was a difficult one for me to kind of find meat to go onto the bones in regards to the history of a tripod because um, I searched high and low, I searched for a number of weeks to make sure that I could find everything that I wanted to discuss in it and there were certain things that I couldn't figure out and there was no mention of them either but the first thing I suppose and we'll start off in the, from the basics is do you know where the word tripod came from? Do you know what tripod means? I'm guessing tree. Yes. Um, tripod, a pod, what would a pod be? Um, is a pod something to do with leg maybe or something? Yeah, more or less, yeah. Feet. It comes from Feet. the um, original, I suppose, Latin aspect of it from a word called tripodis, right. meaning three feet. Very good. And it kind of came into the English vocabulary in the early 17th century, but it obviously would have been around a lot longer before that because a tripod is something that they've found being used for cooking utensils so instead of having something having four legs it would have had three legs so what, what would you, you need back, a tripod for a cooking like i don't need a tripod for my spatula like you know <laughs> but, yeah, but think about it right so if you were living back then and you didn't have your aga cooker or whatever cooker you have right and you're out in the wilderness and you're having to cook your meals and you're gonna put a flyer on the ground and you want some way to be able to have a pot that's going to stay above the fire so it's on three legs instead of four legs. So if you had to make the whole thing, it's going to make something which is going to be stable from three straight away. And it's going to stay there, you being able to use it, cook your food on that pot. So it'd be like a spit. No, no, it wouldn't be like a spit. Um, be like a tripod. <laughs> I suppose, yeah, it'd be like a tripod. <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever hear that saying, uh, kiss, keep it simple, stupid? <laughs> 
Yes, exactly. There you go. And also, you know, it wasn't even just like I say from cooking utensils. It would have been ornaments as well. So there's early ornaments that were found, like I say, in ancient China that had three legs on them. So like the, here, the, all this ancient what? stuff in my nana's house. Uh, God bless her. She'd like all this lovely fancy china. Like so, what they used to put all that kind of stuff on tripods. No, like China that your nana would have is China crockery. So it's like for drinking tea and stuff like that. I'm talking about in the era and the country and the Chinese era, the dynasties and stuff like that, where you'd have ornaments of lions. Well, obviously, a lion has four legs, right? But, you know, you could have an embodiment of that in the shape of something which has three legs underneath it to hold it up. And that's where the early aspects of a tripod would have come into place. And they've found aspects of that when they're doing archaeology and so forth like that. But another one that mm. they would have used a, a tripod for, I know it's in the latter period of time, but it's another, another use of it is for s- holding something up in the easiest and most stable way possible without having to carry any extra weight. So if you think of from the soldiers, when the, their guns as an example, they would have had three legs that popped out from the Uzi, or not the Uzi, the submachine gun when they're lying on the ground. Yeah. holding the gun in place there's three legs that will hold that up because it's mm. three is what you'll need to get the stability that you require but it's instead of having to put the fourth on which is going to give you extra weight even if you had the four it wouldn't would it, it wouldn't be as stable as it would be with the tree would it tree is stronger um i don't know i mean a, t- a table is always going to be stronger than a tripod you know i mean you've got three points of contact instead of four points of contact the more points of contact that you would have the more stability that you're going to get but also with a tripod everything comes into the center so it goes from the widest point right to the center so your center of gravity is focused in one area whereas with a table the center of gravity is spread out across all of the legs equally so there's no central point so i'd say four legs would be more st- Stable in three legs for sure. If you put okay. it into a context of a table, do you know. I'll take your word but, for it, Darren. Well, I mean, look, you know, I see when I'm driving down the road, different types of tripods. When you see guys on the side of the road and they're doing surveying and stuff like that, right? Yeah, I see plenty. So of they'll have they'll have those three legs, bang, folded up. It's easy per se, but they're not telescopic tripods from what I can see. They don't fold back up into themselves like you or I would know a typical tripod. They're going to be much much bigger. So when you look at something and how it would have evolved from that to come into what you and I would use right now, I think there's a number of steps that would have to occur from people using it over the years to know that they've got, I suppose, the confidence in it to know that it's going to hold something up. Yeah. Yep. You're right. And I think from looking at that, I was trying to find, like I said, there was one thing I couldn't figure out was where did it come from and what were the early ones looking like? And like the first tripod that was ever created specifically for photography was in the 1820s um, by a guy called Sir Francis Ronald. And here's the interesting thing. It seems to be an awful lot of controversy when you think about the early aspects of photography because he came up with this. He only managed to sell 140 of them before others took the idea and ripped it off. Oh my God, are you for real? Yeah. People ripped them off. Unbelievable, isn't it? And he only you know was up to no, 140 th- of them. That's mad, because if you think about it, in our first episode of Evolution Photography, they're all scumbags back in the day, man. I mean, like, they're all backstabbing Co- each other all the time. It's crazy, like. No, this wasn't in, in, in France this time. This was in England. I think oh, tell, oh I'm shocked. I'm shocked. Those from. crazy French know, people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't all the crazy French fighting and, like, like in the... Um, the first episode of this but you know what it was interesting that's the first one in his 1820s but by the time it would have come to a photography point of view and how linked in it would have been because obviously as we discussed in the evolution of the photograph it's something which was vitally important to be able to use from photography back then because you couldn't hold the camera long enough in the position because you had to have such a long exposure ah yeah so you had to have the the, the, the I suppose the steadiness let's just say and then when we look at the yeah the stability and when we look at the types of tripods that are there now from the needs of photography like there's two types of tripod per se like i said number one i couldn't find when the first telescopic tripod was created i don't know where that step or that leap would have come from but there are two main types of tripods that people would use and one being a studio tripod and anybody that has 
shot film or seen films being filmed, let's just say, um, you've got these sturdy, heavy, there's three legs in each leg. Yeah. And, you know, big feet on them and everything else. But look what they had to hold up. Look at the weight of the cameras that they had to hold up and what it's been designed for. And they're typically then, they're made of steel. Yeah. Because they used to take that weight. How heavy are they? Yeah, they are heavy. They're ridiculously heavy. The college that I was in, we used to shoot on a thing called the large format camera. Okay. Yes. So we typically have a full frame camera, which is 35 mil. Then you have a medium format, which is bigger than that. I, I can't remember exactly what the size of the sensors, but then you had your large format. And this thing was huge. Like the, the legs, it would have been, I don't know, maybe 12 inches wide, the leg. Wow. And it's made of pure steel. And there was obviously three of them, it's a tripod. And it had wheels at the bottom of it. So you had to push it like a, like a dolly. So push it around the floor or whatever. Then once you get your shot, once you get your in position, it's almost like a, a trolley in a hospital, you know, where you kick down the legs to lock it into place. Mm-hmm. And then you set up your camera and then you set up your shot. And then just before you take the shot, you scream at everyone in the room, do not effing move. Because <laughs> you still, because it was made so long ago, it was still, if you run around the place, you know, on a wooden floor, it's going to shake and that's your picture ruined and you only get one shot of this thing. Do you know, it's, and it's not cheap either. Large format camera, it's expensive to take a, a one exposure. Oh, for sure. So you'd have to make sure you have disability in regards to that because you wouldn't be able to take the risk of taking that shot and it not yeah. being right. And, you know, that brings, I suppose, to the next parent, the next type of tripod and the one you and I would be most familiar with and obviously the listeners would be most familiar with, I think, is your traditional portable tripod so that's your telescopic tripod the idea behind it is it's compact and now the idea is to try and get it as lightweight as possible but still keep the stability that's what the idea is right now but where is that balance because maybe we'll talk about it further into the podcast because I'm sure you have a bit of a structure but maybe in a while we'll talk about the balance of it like uh, because it gets so light to a certain stage that it could get knocked over so easily, you know? So. Absolutely. And you're not, you're not far off that point anyway, because if you look at the manufacturer of it and the materials that are going to be used will dictate the stability of the tripod. And, okay, you can make a tripod from steel, as we just said here with the whole studio. There's wooden tripods, and they're the early ones, but you can still buy wooden tripods as well to this day, and a lot of them would be used too from a um, uh, surveying point of view, because again, it's yeah. weight. You want to have something that you can carry around, but just to get the job done. But would you go out and use a wooden one from a landscape photography point of view? Uh, I'll come back to that now in a second. The first ever tripod that was made, was that wooden? Or I don't think you said, did you? Um, you know? it, 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 it was made of wood. Made of wood. Okay, so. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was just curious. Uh, but would I use a wooden tripod? No, because I'd probably look like an idiot on the side of the Cliffs of Moher with a wooden tripod, but all the rest of the photographers with their lovely carbon fibre one. So I'd be ashamed, really. <laughs> well, you never know. You might, you might be hipster. You might grow a beard, like, and just get yeah. your wooden tripod and do you know just what be I do? in tune with the earth. Do you know what I do? I'll write, uh, I'll um, have my wooden tripod and I'll scrape Gitzo into the side of it. So <laughs> I maybe get a black marker and kind of shade it in the shape for carbon fiber. I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's not happening ever. A lot of work, a lot of work. And again, the other material that you, you can utilize for that is aluminum, which is most people would be familiar with. So you get your, or for the American audience, aluminum, but you get your aluminum tripod, which again is lightweight, absolutely. But it has its downfalls as well. And we can discuss that when it comes, even right now, as I said, in regards to the stability, when is enough is enough or as little is too little. When you get cheap aluminium tripods, which are designed to be compact and allowed to allow you to go off, but you wouldn't put a compact camera up on top of them. They're starting to move. They're starting to wobble. And if you get an, an aluminium tripod, which is designed from a compact point of view, it's going to be thin legs. It's going to be as lightweight as it possibly can be. But you're not going to have any way use of that unless you're in an ideal situation, which is indoors in a controlled environment. That is going to be no potential to have any movement whatsoever that could knock the stability or the instability really of this over. 
Yeah, but it's, you have to keep in mind these days, like the, the tripods, they're getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and you have to differentiate from which is actually a good, affordable and that it's going to do its job and the cheaper ones, which are really not going to do their job. Like Barner talked about it before on the podcast and I was there as a witness because I tried to save his tripod, his poor Milo in the Isle of Sky. And like, I know it's not indoors like we're just talking about, but it wasn't outdoors. And it was just, as Manfrotto, it was a, it's a good tripod, but it just wasn't for that situation. And so that the legs in free. Yeah. And it is the, when you're shooting on a tripod like that, you, you have to have a good center of gravity. So this thing was top heavy, man. And it just, the wind took it and it was just gone, you know. I feel so bad for Milo, you know. He probably came out the better with it because, you know, he, he had insurance, thank God. And he went away and got a lovely new camera and a new lens. But, you know, I felt gutted for him for the rest Absolutely of the trip. Absolutely, you would. You know? And, it, and it's, it's, it's a gamble that you have to take as well because, you know, you're thinking of travelling and you want to get something, as you said, which is lightweight. But there is a trade-off in regards to that. And finding the ideal tripod is something which I think a lot of people will always struggle to find. It's just like camera bags. You know, you might get one that might suit you today, but it may not suit you in a year or vice versa. And I alluded to it in the past episodes about mistakes that I've made in photography was that I started off with the cheapest tripod. Then I went, all right, okay, that's not good enough. I went to small, but more expensive. And then after that, I had another one. I went, you know what? I'm wasting my time here because all they're going to be is not up to the job. They might give me a fix for right now, but I should really be looking to go for one that I know is going to give me the stability that I need and what I want instead of just fitting in all the gaps along the way, you know? Yeah. Yeah, like like we always say, buy once, cry once. Absolutely, yeah. And here's an interesting one for you, right? So, you know, another material that would be used for tripods is plastic. Get out of here, plastic. Yeah. You really? And you want me to go to the Cliffs of Moher now? My wooden tripod and a plastic tripod. Come on, you, Darren. You, you, you you wouldn't buy a plastic tripod. No, not a hope. Would I buy a plastic tripod? You'd be like, what is um, it? Ben Fisher Price, is it? <laughs> Yeah, oh, oh, that's Taylor's made, tripod. Yeah, <laughs> Taylor's my. You dog, already own a plastic tripod. I don't own a plastic tripod. Have a look around there now in the multitude of tripods that you have, and you have a plastic tripod there by a company called Joby, and it's the three K. Ah, oh yeah, <laughs> I do have a plastic <laughs> tripod. <laughs> I've two plastic tripods. No way would I have a plastic tripod. In fact, I have two plastic tripods. <laughs> darn you, Spoonly. Darn you. Oh my God, I feel like I a yank saying that. Darn you. <laughs> and here's the one, I suppose, you know, that you and I would always be, I suppose, interested in is the creme de la creme, the, the best of the best currently in regards to the materials that's being used. And that's the carbon fibre tripod. But here's the thing for you. How long do you think carbon fibre tripods are around? Um, okay, let me think about this now and I'll give, um, okay, I'm going to try and think when carbon fiber was invented. Okay. I've, I've, do you actually know that? No, I'm just, I'm trying to use That's my brain. That's going to make up a number in my head here. <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah, I'll go with that. Okay, um, 1991. Wow, man, you're not that far off. What is it? Fake off. Am I really... So the first professional carbon fibre tripod and monopod were revealed in Photokina in 1994. All oh, right. So I Bye. had this idea before them, you see. So that's why I was thinking oh. 91. Oh, yeah. 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 Who, who, who do you think is the company that revealed it? Um, um, crazy French guys. No, not far away though, but I mean, they're, they're in the continent of Europe, but they're not in France. It's Germans, that has to be Germans, they invent everything that's awesome. Not on this occasion, so now the mantle has been passed over to Italia. Ah, Manfrotto. Was, no. Oh my Gizzo, God. Or, 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 or Jitso, as you pronounce it ever since Gizzo. we met. Our oh, ambassador at the, at the photo show. Uh, Jitso. So are Jitso not Manfrotto, no? They merged, yes. So they're part of the same umbrella of families right now, but they're not exactly the same. And here's the interesting is that, you know, Gitso were founded in 1917. Gitso in 1917. Jesus. Yeah. That was after the and 1916 Man rising. 
after that, yeah. A lot of stuff happened around photography back then, if you remember all those things, because That's everything right. went on pause because everything went to war from the last mm-hmm. episode of the um, Evolution Photography. But then they obviously are starting to produce during that period of time. But then you look at the other company you mentioned, which is Manfrotto. When do you think Manfrotto was founded? Well, if they were in 1917, I'm guessing it was 1920, 1923. Inspiration always kind of brings on other things. What? Yeah. <laughs> 1974. Okay, that's a big gap, like. That's like... Isn't it? That's... Like, imagine having kids, like, you'll have one in 1917, but I'll wait till 1974 to have my second child. That's a big mm. gap. Mm. You know? Mm. So, and do you know what, when you think about manufacturers, actually, and this is the interesting point when we look at tripods, and again, how the tripod is continuously evolving. So, we've gone through the different type of materials that it would have come from, and now we're up into the carbon fibre aspects of it. But even within... Look at Manfrotto. Manfrotto produce. Uh, we spoke about a second ago, a tripod for everybody, a tripod for every type of use, from your lightest weight bearing to the heaviest weight bearing tripods. Now, there's a trade-off, as we had said, in between that, but most people would know of Manfrotto and most listeners, I think, would have a Manfrotto. Yeah, you have Manfrotto. I, um, I don't have one anymore. I sold one. Oh, did you? Yeah, I salted some dude and, and I'm like, I'm sorry to go off on a rant now, but she's the thing was immaculate. I mean, immaculate. And this guy that bought it off me is like, oh, that's that's well used, that's well used. I said, dude, it's been used about 10 times, seriously. Like, it's, it's, no, I'll give you the asking money that I said I'd give you, but it's well used. I kept on saying to him, it's not well used, it's, it's babied, like, you know. Gen- genuinely, I'd be shocked if it came out of my house 10 times. And it kind of got to me. And I felt like just taking the tripod off and just walking away because he annoyed me that much. <laughs> you know, don't say something that's not true. You know, it's the tripod is like brand new. You know, hopefully, hope he's not listening now, actually. <laughs> ah, hang on a second. You can't be saying that. I mean, we're going to go off topic here now slightly because that's the pot calling the kettle black. You are the biggest hustler on adverts I've I ever am, seen. But so it, you, can't, you cannot turn around to anybody and say that they can't say the same thing to you because you would go and do exactly the same point. Now, the no, fact he probably no, no, by, no. by your reaction when he insulted you so bad by saying you didn't take care of any of your gear. And again, if our listeners don't know, I mean, he's got a lifetime subscription for cotton buds because he wants to make sure everything is spotlessly clean. So I know that that tripod would have been in good condition, but he chanced his arm trying to get the price down. And obviously judging by your reaction, he went, all right, I better back off here. No, he's like, to smack <laughs> off this fella. You can't, you can turn around and give out to somebody for doing exactly the same thing that you would do and have done and will continue to do in anything that you buy secondhand no, from somebody no, else. You no, can't do that. You can't. No, no, I will. <laughs> I call a spade a spade. If something's not true, it's not true. And I will not pull up some bull crap on someone that is not true so, so I try to buy a tripod off someone and if it's in ridiculously good a condition I will not turn around and say to him that's not in good condition you know but I'll find other ways to do it <laughs> you know I don't uh, I don't agree I think you're 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 being pot calling the kettle black here on that because everybody's going to try ah, and whatever. chance their arm even when you buy a car you might know that there's marks on it and you'll still look for more marks because you're trying to reduce the price. Whether yeah, or not you find judge. them or not, you do it. I know, but this guy is talking poo-poo. I don't know. I mean, he should have a look at my man, Frato Tripod. He'll see how it, what use looks like. Yeah. Come on, we get back to tripods. <laughs> we right, digress okay. a right. small bit there. Okay, so I want to go through the different type of manufacturers that are out there and the tripods that are available, okay? So, like I said, we've done Manfrotto. Gitzo we spoke about, but Gitzo to you and I is probably the cream of the crop. It's the the best of the best, the highest of the high, you know, the most expensive of the most expensive. Um, but again, the one that you want to aim for, the one that you want to have, and you kind of build yourself up in regards to getting that. We've discussed that before. Gitzo have got a range of tripods, again, falling into the two different brackets so you know your studio tripod and your portable tripod and within that you've got a range of the the traveler range or even right up as far as the i don't know what the series of them is called but you know they're the 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 top end um tripods yeah but there's another one now which you hear a lot of people talking about recently and it's benro you heard them 
I have, but I consider them. Uh, I wouldn't consider them cream of the crop. I'd consider them kind of medium to budget. Well, they're coming out with some good ideas in tripods, and they're a mid-range pricing point of view. And you know, I would have thought because of speaking to people about them, is oh Ben Roya, they're really good. They've got this. They got that. They got this. They got that. But they do have, you know, some little sort of quirkinesses that they would bring to the table. But moreover, they're still a new company. I mean, they started in um, 1996 and they shipped, I believe, their first tripod in 2002. So in the relative scheme of things, they're still quite a new company and another one that comes onto the scene. And if you look at other companies that are out there, not necessarily tripod companies. So you've got Raleigh or Roly, which is the German company, and they're from the early camera film days and that's their core business let's just say but they also have a tripod in fact you have one of their tripods yeah uh they are quite so, don't get me wrong some of them are really really good but some of them are absolutely brutally bad i mm. have experienced both hands of these so i would encourage some to spend the upper echelon parts of money on the better tripods for raleigh because they are actually quite good really really good especially the the beta series but anything under that the travel the cheaper even the carbon fiber ones the more expensive travel tripods they're the biggest load of crap that i've ever experienced in my life they're so so bad i mean i genuinely like two of the tripods i had one replaced for water damage it was so bad i sent it back and then they sent me another one got me another one and the exact same thing happened I threw a wobbler then after that, like, you know, I got so, so annoyed, you know, but. Yeah, but the one that you have now, which is the stronger one, has been worked very, very well, and you're still saying how good Correct. it is. But you know what? You can yeah. get that. I mean, maybe it wasn't designed, maybe you didn't get the one that you needed or, or sold the one that you needed for the camera gear that you were using. So, you know, I'm sure every manufacturer will have quality control before they release a tripod. So we spoke a second ago about Manfrotto. Obviously, with the B free, it's a lightweight, compact yeah. tripod. You put something of an expectation that you're going to take that off to the cliff some more on a relatively windy day and put a 5D Mark III and a 7200 on top of it. It ain't going to happen. And Milo would know of that, obviously, when yeah. he was on that trip with Bernard, you know. But um, looking at other manufacturers as well that are out there, and there's, you know, you have a piece on your camera. It's orange. It's by a company called Three Legged Thing. Mm-hmm. So, quite an apt, an apt name for a tripod company. They're a tripod company, but they come up then with kind of quirky names for all of their tripods themselves. And they've got one which is the Winston. And, you know, you hear people going, oh, I got my Winston. And you're like, what the hell are we talking What's about? What's a Winston? It's a, they give names to the types of tripods that they would have. Oh, yeah. I think John Holmes is on about something about a tripod there lately that he called it like, I don't know, something like Colby or something as they're going, what the fuck? It's like, there's yeah, a name in his tripods. They give their names. They give their tripod names. So, so is it after Winston Churchill, one. maybe? Huh? Is it after Winston Churchill? I have no idea. Just to give them names. Just makes it different, right. you know? Instead of a MX974-246A26B-2. I know the I mean, one you're talking about, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, sorry. It was slash three. I got the wrong model. Oh, yeah. I have the number four. <laughs> How about how about the other company, which is very, very good? Um, similar along the lines, I think, from the name that they've created for themselves, True Users, is really right stuff. I know nothing about them. All I know is that they're really expensive and I can't afford it. Same as that. But anybody that does use them, they are saying they're phenomenally good. There's never an issue with them. Similar to what you'd hear from a Gitzo point of view. But again, that's the top end of the tripod market, let's just say. But they're not and, really... You know, for sale here though I, I don't think I've seen one for here so like is there a distributor here in Ireland I don't know I haven't either but probably because they're so insanely expensive there's not much demand for it and if somebody does want to get it they'll get it online and get it shipped over you know so yeah. in reality like it's a very niche market let's just say that's going to be able to purchase those so would you really want to have that here sitting in stock on the off chance that somebody is going to get it for you and yeah. is really right stuff really going to give you a distributorship for that loose order of whenever 
whatever, at some stage you might get you an order. You're not going to get any deal in regards to that. You're better off just to go and buy it yourself directly. But all I've heard from them, there's a guy that I know there um, in San Francisco, Bruce Getty. He's a phenomenal cityscape photographer and he uses the really right stuff and he swears by it. He says it's, it's, it's yeah. phenomenal. Do you know? Yeah, I hear about it a lot on the Master Photography Podcast, all right. Mm. Yeah, they're very good. And here's another one for you, right? And I saw this one recently and it's a, a company called Peak Design. Have you heard of Peak Design? Yeah, David Woodland has the Peak Design strap, so the next strap. Um, that, that, that was originally what I had heard from them, is that uh, Mark O'Brien actually and Terry McSweeney both have the Peak Design connector on the side of their camera, and the idea behind it is that it just uh, clips into itself and you can yeah. quick release and take it off. And now they've come up with the effectively the ultimate tripod as far as they're concerned because it's been completely redesigned the whole life of a tripod from an evolution point of view it's very important because the legs are no longer round the legs are kind of triangular shape and they fold into each other in a tripod way but make end up with the whole thing effectively becoming one sphere in a circular motion if you know what i mean so it's like that a transformer so scientific sorry that sounds so scientific <laughs> yeah there's a lot of work that went into it and even on that there's no sticky outy pieces either that you'd have normally in a tripod you try and try and stuff that into a bag or stuff that down the side of your bag and it's getting cotton netting whereas with the peak design one it doesn't and it folds up itself into a there's no sticky out pieces basically everything folds that's into very itself. scientific Yes, and it also has another thing built into it on the top of it. You open a compartment and out pops a holder for your mobile phone. So you can ah, hold your mobile cool. phone as well on it. It's oh, just hidden this, inside in it. Is this the thing that attacked uh, Tony Northrop? Uh, I think so, yeah. Didn't he yeah. cut his finger or something? I, yes. I, I remember reading, reading a report that I don't know, they turned it into yes. something funny, like, you know. And now you think then in regards to, you know, how that would have come about and, you know, people are knowing about it from a social media point of view and now it's bringing out the whole world of people wanting to create something new but not being able to do it themselves so now the advent of the likes of say kickstarter has brought these ideas to the fray bringing people to, to see all these new concepts from small individuals creating their idea for a tripod of the future or something that's going to be different and there's a manufacturer there born out of Kickstarter called Colorado Tripod Company and their aim is to release the world's first titanium system of tripods. What's so special about titanium then? Number one, it's going to be very expensive I imagine but moreover it's very much so lightweight, very strong. So it's what's used in military grade. They use titanium in you know certain things. I don't know exactly what but I know that it's very, very lightweight but very expensive. But so if you think lighter... And very strong, fiber. so it, that, that's ticking the boxes of what you want to try and achieve from a tripod point of view, because you want something that's going to be stable, strong, and lightweight. Mm. Is it stronger I, than, or sorry, is this uh, lighter than carbon fibre? Yes. I want one. <laughs> and it's shiny. <laughs> I definitely I want, want two. One. <laughs> I want five of them. I think Adam Gibbs mentioned something about using one of their tripods in one of his videos a couple of months back. So um, obviously I think it would be a, an interesting tripod to use, particularly if it's going to change the basis, I suppose, that we farm everything on at the moment. And actually speaking, I suppose, there are a couple of other just manufacturers there. There's one that we both use and it is very handy from a vlogging point of view because it's a traveller tripod. It's lightweight. It's by a company called Leo Photo. Now, I don't think they're available in Ireland or only available in England, but they're a perfect lightweight tripod. They, they take quite a lot of the features that you'd see in the bigger name tripods and then bring it into this smaller tripod. Mm. Um, and again, like, you know, there's a number of different other manufacturers out there, I, I imagine. But these are just probably the main ones that I've seen recently and that I would, you know, use, not like you, not all of them, but they're... I've used some of them, you know what I mean? Yeah. I do like the Leo Photo one because I don't use it for photography. I use it for vlogging. So I wanted the smallest, sturdy, lightest tripod I could get away with that's going to be on a tripod for no longer than two or three minutes and then I take it off again. And this thing kind of ticked all the boxes for me. It's got an Arca Swiss uh, head. It's got um, 
it's 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 very light. It's kind of it's compact, and I can stick it in into inside the inside of the bag, you know. So I can stick it on the outside. It's up to myself. But yeah, I I I like it. It's it's, it's great. But they're not cheap either. Do you know? No, they're not. But look, that's from that's the point. I mean, look, you you're obviously going to have a trade off. You want to look at aiming. If you want to aim for something which is going to be strong and lightweight, then it's going to cost you more money. Mm. But you know what? On the flip side to that, you mentioned about vlogging, right? So, like we've already alluded to the fact that you didn't realize that you have not one but two plastic tripods at home. <laughs> um, so the the Joel B Gorilla Pod is very that changed the whole world. If you think in regards to what a tripod leg can be, because if you most people would be familiar with these, but if you're not, it's not a standard tripod leg it's a smaller version it's a handheld version but the legs themselves you can twist them around anything you want you can connect them onto any sort of surface let's just say and they can grip on like a gorilla holding on to something tight um, and it's really really good from that point of view because you can use that from a vlogging holding it out you can create a shape of that to hold the camera in front of you you can put it on a railing you can stick it on a tree you can put it wherever you want to put it to record what you want from a vlogging point of view. Yeah. It's, I think it's right. You're right. It is revolutionizing. And whoever invented it has to be a millionaire now at this stage, because I think uh, their worldwide sales are probably through the roof. I, uh, everyone, if, like even my, uh, my, my brother-in-law wants one, and he's not even a photographer. He wants one mm-hmm. for his phone so he can record himself for his golf swing. There you go. Absolutely. And stick it down, off you go, so versatile. And like from a vlogging point of view, no, there's one there that I saw recently. I don't know if you've heard of it or not. It's called a switch pod. Have you heard of this? No. So hopefully I'll be able to explain it in a way that the listeners and, and you will be able to figure out what I'm talking about. In a so, very scientific way, yeah. Yeah, well, I don't know if I can try and do it as scientific. I'm talking to you. But um, <laughs> imagine that you had three legs, obviously, very similar to your gorilla pod. But instead of them being flexible, they are static. So they're one okay. piece of... Instead of them being round, they're a piece of... A, they're a bar. Yes. And then if you were able to catch all three of those bars and fold them into each other, they'd make one big bar. Okay. Okay, so they'd twist around the central point and create one big bar. So that holding onto that bar, you can utilize that from a vlogging point of view, exactly the same as what you do with a gorilla pod. And then basically at the flick of your finger, bang, out come the three legs and you can place it down. So it's like a shape of a gun. Kind of ish, yeah, but it's just, it's just everything falls back into itself. They're called a switch pod. They're quite interesting, you know? Mm. I and might like that. I think you would like that. I think, you know, it's not shiny, but I'm sure it's made of metal, so there's actually a good sound off it as well. And it's lightweight, you know. It's not made of cast iron that you're not going to be able to lift, like, do you know? Uh, If it's not shiny, I don't want it. And the the final part then, I suppose, in this, from an evolution point of view, is one which is called a levelling tripod. Have you heard of that? Only from a certain vlogger. And... Thomas Eaton. Yes. And... I've seen it on his videos and it just looks mind-boggling. It likes you need a degree in fucking engineering to, to know how it works. It's the most simplest thing you could possibly imagine. Okay. So if you think about this, when you want to level your tripod currently, you take out the tripod legs, you extend them fully or you extend them whatever to try and get it as level as you possibly can get it based on the uneven ground underneath you. Yeah, And even at that, then you're struggling with one leg, you're undoing one clip, you're dropping it down what you think is enough and it's not too much, you're dropping it down a bit and it's a bit, you know, too much or whatever. And you're constantly wrestling with the three legs because you're, de- you're dealing with uneven ground, correct? Correct. Okay. So imagine if you could put the tripod down and it doesn't have to be even, but instead of you having to get the tripod even, all you want to do is get the top of the tripod even. So underneath it is a lever and you just twist the lever, the top of the head is fluid, so you just move that lever to get the actual top of the head balanced. It's irrelevant what the legs are doing underneath. Isn't it just the same as a normal ball head, so no? No, a ball head won't do the same for you either because the tripod itself is going to be off. So with a ball head, you just turn the camera, of course, and you're getting it level. But if you try and do a um, panorama, 
you may look at it being level when the camera's in that position. If your legs underneath aren't exactly straight, there will always be a certain degree. And by the time you swing the camera around, you will lose a degree up or down, left or right on either side. Whereas with the leveling tripod, you know it's level in the centre. It's in the centre of the tripod itself and you can twist that around. It's always going to remain level. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. You know? So I think that's the last thing I want to discuss there with on the evolution of a tripod. Hopefully I've covered the topic well. I hope you've learned a bit more on tripods than you knew before the start of this. I actually have. Uh, I'm a better man now and I feel like I've learned a lot in this 40 minutes. Thank you very much. It's going to be a bastard to edit. (laughs) And on that note, guys, thanks very much. And we'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Are you tired of running out of power at that crucial moment? Do you need to charge two batteries simultaneously or charge on the go while in your car? The award-winning Pro Cube 2 from Halo has got you covered. Available for Canon, Nikon, Sony and Panasonic. Visit halo.ie. And you're very welcome back to the Irish Photography Podcast. Dermot didn't fall asleep after the first part, you know, listening to tripods for such a long period of time. But you know what? I think we kind of got a lot out of it there. I think I need to hold his head up, though. I think you need a few <laughs> tripods to hold your head up there, yeah? Ah, oh, wrecked. I'm absolutely wrecked. Do you know, actually, before we get into the next topic, right, I, something funny happened to me yesterday. Well, I don't know if it's a proud moment or is it like I'm talking to my kids too much. We're in, t- let me set the scene for you very fast. We're in TK Maxx. And Taylor's like, can I go over to the toys? Yeah, go on, go over. And then I went over to her then after looking at the shoes. And I said, I'm going upstairs to the, the, uh, the mountaineering section or whatever, any other section. And she goes, oh, daddy, look at this. I want to show you this. Look, look at it. I love this toy. Isn't it amazing? Yeah, it's great. Can I get it? No, you can't. But it's orange. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just went, oh, you're fucking kidding me. I went, are you, you for it? real? Yeah. Did you get it? No. <laughs> oh my God, you had to have gotten it. Got I, I couldn't have been. Jesus, it, it was like 35 euros for this tiny little stupid toy. Oh no, thanks. Yeah. Forget that. It'll be forgotten about it after two weeks. Not even two weeks, two days. The box will yeah. be more important after two hours. But isn't she deadly like? Unbelievable. Unbelievable, yeah. Unbelievable. So... Back to photography. I know it's not orange, the next topic, but we can bring it around to orange <laughs> if you wish, you know. So it's about post-production, Dermot, right? And the question is, is it cheating or not? And I think it's a very wide and varied topic. And I'd, you know, I'd like your opinion in regards to it first and foremost, and I'll give you my opinion about it as well, obviously, after that. Right, okay. So you want my opinion first? Yeah. Is post-production cheating? Absolutely not in any way, shape or form. Even from the very first day that a camera was invented, it was made to be like maybe manipulated in some way. Even when you're taking the picture, you can manipulate it in a certain way. You can do an underexposed shot, you can do an overexposed shot, and that's the way you're manipulating light. So you're manipulating the image before you even make it, before you can get it into post-production itself. So you can you bend the rules to say... Is it cheating? Um, I I don't think so, but I can see some people's point of view that it gets to a certain stage. And what is that stage when it goes beyond, this has kind of gone too far, this is over-processed. Like, was that chess piece really there in the image? Was that pig really flying in the sky? Uh, did that guy really have three eyes or three nipples or whatever? You know, it, it, there is a line. You have to draw it in the sand at times, but... Is post-production cheating? Depends what hat you're wearing. Okay, that's a good varied answer. I suppose, I mean, look, you can look at it from two different ways. Number one, there is no such thing as a non-post-production image. Every image is processed, regardless. So even from a film point of view, your image is processed. That's where film processing comes from. You know, you're looking at digital point of view, you're taking a raw photograph. The image that comes up in the back of your camera is a jpeg renditions process of what it's going to look like people go off and what kind of made me think about this a bit more was i often see comments on facebook groups and it kind of in one way drives me crazy and the other time i just go yeah whatever just move on they're just trolls looking for a rise out of people Mm. but you get people putting up comments kind of going oh would you ever stop posting your overproduced images or your post-processed image and just post up a real image and how it actually was and stuff like that and 
I'm thinking, like, what are these people talking about in reality? Because people come up going, look, this is a real image I took. I took it with my iPhone. Okay, newsflash, that's been processed. And it's been yep. processed by your phone. And if it's been processed by your phone, you more than likely have the HDR thing turned on. So you're getting a HDR image courtesy of Apple coding. But all right, yeah, you go back to bed there, Brainiac, and think that you haven't got a processed image because every image is processed. But you're worse. You're worse for letting yourself get riled up about all these oh, I don't. I don't. I know they're trolls. I move on. But I know I'm sure there's plenty of people out there, Jeremy, that do get riled up about it and do get annoyed by it because I see the comments coming back in. And I've seen people get very, very angry and animated where somebody would accuse them of processing their image. And they're like, well, how else am I supposed to get it onto the computer? And they're just dealing with people that don't see the reality. And I can say, I get a fu- you know, you often see the, the, the jokes about, you know, Michael Jackson kind of gif sitting in the cinema eating popcorn. I just came here for the comments <laughs> kind of thing. Like, you know, you, you kind of see this topic, but you can see it go off on major tangents. And I think it's a really good topic to discuss because there is no right or wrong, ultimately, until you start manipulating the image to create something that actually wasn't there. So if you're taking a photo of a landscape scene and you get a sunset, you're going to get that raw image. It's going to be flat. You're going to have to bring out the color that's there, that was already there. But can you then go further by boosting the saturation? We said it before to a a number 11 spinal tap. Yeah. All right. So think of it this way. Think of it this way. Darren Lane posted an image there. uh, Was it last week or the week before it, right? And it was a picture of um, a field with haystacks, yes. you know, all these yes. things. And But then he had a moon in the background. So it's obviously yes. a, a composite. But the the sun, it would have been a sunset shot because you had all the shadows from the haystacks on the left-hand side of it. Mm-hmm. But then you had the moon directly ahead of it. So is that image wrong? Has he gone too far or is this okay? Very interesting one because I remember seeing that image and straight away the photographer and me went, "Mm, okay, as you said, the shadows are going to the left-hand side, you know, the moon is up in the top. It's obviously much bigger than what it was going to ever be. But in fairness to Darren, he had said, you know, it was his concept, it's his idea of creating this scene. So he was yep. full disclosure at the very beginning. And from a photographer, I used to look and go, okay, you know what, she's done something nice here. But, the audience reaction, which is the general public, it just went through the roof. And he had, I think in two hours or three hours, 1,000 likes on the picture on Facebook. So everybody loved it. But the photographer in me could see where the flaws were, but the general public loved it. So, do you know? Think of it this way, so, right? If he didn't put in the moon and he left the original sky there, would he have uh, 1,000 likes? No, you wouldn't. 2,000 likes. No, you wouldn't. And that's the point, because that's what makes it stand out, because it's something which stops you in your tracks. And if you look at a number of images that are out there, I mean, you know, we discussed before about the, the greats, right? So you've got Ansel Adams and his moon fo- photography and his moonshot over the Sierra Mountains, I think it was. I mean, he yeah. dodged and burned to death, that image. He was the biggest post-processor of them all. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, that image stands out because of the work that he did in post-processing. Okay, granted, he wasn't combining two layers. Or was he? Because, you know, that man was very, I suppose, innovative in regards to his post-production style and doing things back then that you wouldn't even think have been possible. So, you now get to where we are right now from a photography and a digital photography world. The world is your oyster in reality. You can create at scene. So Darren could have turned around and said, you know, I don't like the colour of that moon. I think I want to make it psychedelic orange. You would have been delighted, of course. <laughs> but, you know, it would have looked and said, that isn't something which was natural, but it could still look nice. Yeah. You could you yeah. could turn the you could turn the moon purple. And oh, you know wait, what? didn't he turn the moon into a sponge, Bob Squarepants, actually? I I'm fully convinced Darren. Turn as a bit of a joke. A couple of days later, turn the moon into SpongeBob SpongeBob SquarePants. Am I wrong? I I, I think I saw something. I think he put it in as a comment that somebody had sent it on to him yeah. or something along those lines. Yeah, but Darren, that's exactly Darren, the point, like Darren. If not you, know Darren Lane, will you post it in the Facebook page the SpongeBob SquarePants, please? If you are listening, oh, I'd love to see that image again. <laughs> 
I would, I, you know what, I think it's very interesting when you look at that one image, but if you look overall from a whole photography point of view, some of the best images that you and I have seen over the last number of years that would stand out to us are ones which are full of colour, are in a scene which stops you in your tracks and you look and you go, oh, what's that? Or are full of atmosphere. And none of that is not not possible in Photoshop. Correct. So you can create a scene, anything that you want in the ideal situations in Photoshop. But if it's appealing and it gets an emotive response, then surely that's the artistic work of the artist coming through in what their artistic impression of the scene would have been. Now, provided you have full disclosure at the very beginning and saying my view of or my impression or what I saw in my head or whatever it may have been. But I've seen people out there trying to put pictures off that are real. Like, you know, you get to talk about the moon because obviously we just passed a full moon right now. And I didn't see that many this time. But generally, you'll always see somebody putting in a moon in a cityscape. The moon is 10 times bigger than it ever, ever is going to be. There is no <laughs> reflection of the moon in the water. And they will adamantly say, no, that's one shot. That's one shot. Yeah, and no, that, and that's the moon is... And the moon is in front of the clouds as well. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Everyone always makes that mistake. You're there going, yeah, yeah you sure, buddy? <laughs> <clears throat> and you see, and that's the part, like, you know, like you will get people that see this thing, but the general public may not even look for that detail, but the general public will look at that, at that dreamy effect and that dreamy image of something that is not real, but creates an emotive response. But if people, do you know what, the general public are okay with Photoshop image because all this is, oh, that's Photoshop. Like even a photograph that I put up aft of Claire Glens or somewhere, you know, so any any waterfall. Uh, oh, oh, here's a prime example. I had a picture of Glencar waterfall up there in Mayo, Mayo, I think it's up in Mayo. Beautiful waterfall. And the amount of people, a lot of people liked it and loved it and shared it, but the amount of general people uh, we'll just call them regular humans, said to me, oh, that's photoshopped. I was there going, ah, is it? It, it? I put it into Lightroom. Okay, some people will laugh. I, I, uh, Lightroom is photoshopped because it's owned by Adobe. But all that was really done was uh, reduce the highlights, boost the shadows, bit of sats, you know, a bit of split tone in here, there. I don't know, maybe not. But then I put it up in the world to see and then... All my photographer friends will say, lovely image, fantastic, lovely. But all the general public will say, that's Photoshop. But they're okay with it. They like it. Because like you said, it's that dreamy, that ethereal look. I, I actually get that as well. And I get that people that I would meet that I know in real life, let's just say. Um, and they go, oh yeah, I saw that picture you put up last week. That was lovely. Like, what, what you doing in Photoshop for that? I'm like... What? What do you mean? I didn't do. I don't do. I oh, don't do. I don't do. I don't, do, oh, you don't know Photoshop. No, I don't know Photoshop. There's too many buttons. I don't know how to drive the spaceship. Oh yeah, yeah. Really? I was like, yeah. Jesus. Like, and that's the general reaction, you know. And that's yeah. That's fine. There's no problem in regards to it. But at the same point, there are certain parts of post production which you will necessarily have to do because you're shooting in raw. Like I said. So technically speaking, I should turn around and say, that's Photoshop. No, actually, Lightroom. Because it is Lightroom, but Lightroom affects yeah. the image, let's just say, from changing the basics. You know, you, as everybody would mostly know, your your shadows, your highlights, you know, your blacks, your whites, your vibrance. You can change your yeah. white balance, but you can't go manipulating the image in Lightroom like you can in Photoshop, other than using the likes of, say, your clone tool. So I have an image that I took as an example. It's up in um, Pine Lake. It's Loch... Jeez, the name escapes me. It's on the way to Clifton. But it's it's Pine Lake. There's pine trees there, right? But um, there's power lines that run right across the centre of your image. You can't avoid them. They're there. Anybody that photographs there knows that they're there. The general public may not know that they're there. But I remember going up there and I got perfect conditions. I was going for a friend of mine's wedding in Clifton. And I was coming back out the road the following morning and the place was just flat cam of water. And I said, okay, got to oh, get the yeah. shot. I had the camera gear with me. Off I went out, took the photograph, had the flat water. Within the space of literally a minute and a half of me taking the photograph, the wind came in and the flatness was gone from the water. So the reflection of the trees and everything was gone. So I knew I had the shot. And I said, you know what? 
here's what I wanted to do, you know, it was for Aidan, a friend of mine, I said, okay, I'll get them this and I'll print it for them. And it was the picture taken the morning after their wedding. It was taken down the road from where they got married and they both found the whole Connemara area. I'll print it and I'll give it to them, right? Yeah. So I'm looking at the image here and I'm going, right, okay, it's a lovely shot, great reflections, but man, I cannot get my eye off this power line that's going right across the centre of the image. Get rid and of do it. I really want to print this picture and send them the picture to put up on the mantelpiece or whatever, and all I'm going to look at if I ever see that, and potentially them, is this ugly power line going across the centre of the image. So I removed it, and I said, okay, how do I do that? That was the first thing. So I had to go onto YouTube and figure out how to do it in, in Photoshop because Lightroom couldn't do it for me because it just wasn't able to fill in the gaps, as you say, in the pixels. But I ended up with a much better image. And now even today, if, to this day, if I post the image or show the image to somebody who's a photographer, they'll say, oh, did they get rid of the power lines from there? They're gone. No, they were there. I just took them out. But you say it to anybody else, they have no idea the, of the power lines because we as photographers will see these things which distract us from the image that we want to produce or the vision that we have of the image in our head. And then... It's okay, really, yes, to pop in and take those images out. So you're taking your process, not have those images, take those artifacts out. So you are processing your image there, but to the next level on that, yeah? Yeah, I think I'm just going to go up and get a chainsaw and just cut them down and then everyone will be happy. <laughs> but then there'll be no power going to the people around you, so not everybody will be happy. Uh, they won't know it's me. It's grand. It's all good. <laughs> so tell me this right um have you ever had a situation where you have been going out taking photos and you're taking the photo but you've got a different vision in your head so you know how you're going to post process that image while you're taking the photo i'm very simple right that's true <laughs> and i don't mean that in a, in a fun way i i mean that as a genuine way i story. don't i don't i try not i tried to do this whole pre-visualization stuff or whatever so uh, i i've been doing try to do planning i try to do scouting i try all these things that you want me to do yeah okay and i am trying to put them into effect but previously and still to this day i will go out to shoot and whatever is in front of me i will shoot i don't try to say okay I see this image, this is what I want from it, and this is what I'm going to do to go get it. I go out, and what's there in front of me, I shoot. And you know, and I adapt to the situation. So if I want to shoot long exposure, it's long exposure. If I don't want long exposure, then it's a normal, realistic image. And it's either A or B. And I don't know if I'm different from everyone else, or if I'm the same as everyone else. Um, I don't know. It's a, it's, it's a weird one. I, but like, I know you're into this whole thought process and this is how my, you, you have like a plan and you run your plan and some, and more often enough, you don't deviate from it. That's what you do. Yeah. But let me give you, let me give you an example of something. You've been out in the clear glens, you're taking photographs and all of a sudden there's something in your frame that you can't reach. You can't take it out of your frame. So you're now yeah. shooting and going, I'll take that out later in post. Yeah. So you are doing it. But I try to take it out before I take the picture. But you can't reach it. It's hanging down from a tree or it's in the way. Or you, it's not physically possible for you to take it out. Yeah, I suppose. So you know you're taking that picture and you're going to take that out in the first place. Now, that's at the very basic level. You can get people out there that would take a photograph and it could be a bright daylight shot, but they know they're going to produce a nighttime shot from that. Mm. I'll try, I like... If that thing was in the way, I'd probably try move so I take it out of the image before I even take it. I'll try to find a different composition. But if I can't find a different composition, then yeah, I will take it out. Uh, and, mm -hmm. and it's funny that you said the Claire Glens because it happened to me before. I actually got into the water and tried to move this big, <laughs> massive branch. And I couldn't. I, For the love of God, I could not move it. And I went, excuse me, I went home and then I processed the image and I took it out. I didn't even like the image. I was true in the bin. <laughs> but after it all that. To show, yeah, I, after all that, I didn't even like it. Yeah. Up well, to my knees in the water. How about on the other side of it then, right? When you look at pre-production as opposed to post-production, right? So when we were in England and we were in Dermot Water, there just so happened to be conveniently next to a lot of the water, bodies of water that we were at, these lovely looking logs or branches of trees. Yeah. 
Um, where were we? Derwent Water. We were in Derwent Water. There was a lovely oh, log yeah. that was just conveniently yeah. just lying by the side of the water. When we were in Buttermere, there was exactly the same situation. There was a convenient log with lovely branches and nice leading lines in it just lying by the side of the water. So that tells yeah. you that people are pre-production. So they're creating the scene for the photograph because you want to take that shot. Okay, you've got your water, or your body of water in front of you, but you're missing that foreground interest. I am a big proponent about pre-production and it's from the wedding side of photography for that reason because I try to save myself as much time as an editor for wedding photography because that's where you get your value for ta- for money as a wedding photographer. You can charge X, Y, Z, whatever you want for, the, for your wedding, but if you can't get your editing out the door as fast as you can, then that's time, right? And mm-hmm. time is a valuable thing. So when I'm shooting a wedding, like I shot one the other day, right? And I had the, uh, the bride's dress up and, you know, the generic up by the window, hanging from the window, and you've the curtains on either side. I took the photograph and straight away from the photograph, I was like, okay, there's a ladder out in your back garden. That has to be moved. And she's like, what? Is, is there? Dad, move the ladder. <laughs> right? And what? then I, I just... The photographer I, said, move the ladder. <laughs> and then I was there. No, I didn't say it. I moved the ladder. Do you know, I was you like, did. oh, you probably we'll, we'll have to move the ladder. You know, and then I was like, there's paint buckets there. They have to be moved. There's what were a you bar thinking, in. lads? Dad, what were you thinking? Bring the paint buckets to your own house. <laughs> I know. For God's sake, Dad. There was a big orange barine down the left-hand corner. That had to be moved. I took, I moved that. I I played my part. It was orange. <laughs> you had to. You were drawn to it. Oh, it's orange. Yeah. I have to do it. But you know, but it's all down to pre-production. And when we were in Derwent Water, I used that branch. I you moved did. it into my image to use it as a leading line. And yeah, it is, uh, like I said, big proponent about pre-production. If you can move something out of an image that's going to get you to an image, do move it. But if it's part of the environment, I would strongly disencourage you to move it because you're damaging the environment, you're damaging uh, marine life or whatever. It's something, you know, if, it's, if you're not supposed to do something, don't do it. But if you are, you're grand. Yeah, I agree with you in regards to that. But the one final point I want to make about it, when you look at it again from a post-production point of view, you know, one of our previous guests, actually, Mass Peter Everson, is very much so a proponent of manipulation of the image in post-production to create a scene that he envisions in his head. So he would have a sky or a Milky Way, and he'll pop that Milky Way into an image. And it'll work perfectly fine in that image, and it'll work perfectly fine in another image as well. But you're creating something which, okay, theoretically speaking, all right, you can say that it is there, it's behind the clouds in reality, but if you get blocked out, you can pop in your skies. And, you know, you look at Luminar, so Skylum, that product, that's all about yes. replacing skies. That's all about, you know, have a bank of images which are going to be good quality skies. You can drop in the sky and bang, you create a new image that wasn't necessarily there. And actually doing a bit of research on it as well, it seems interesting because it will create the same and match the colour of fall of light on your subject as well for what the sky that it's giving you is. So you can manipulate the image and like with, with Darren's example there of the moon and the hay bales with the shadows going one way if you could imagine that you had a very golden sunset but your foreground you didn't take it in sunset so you take the sky from luminar drop it into the back of your image and it'll replicate the light that you have in the sky in the same white balance and colour intensity on your foreground, so it looks as if it's seamless. So that's taken that to another unreal. level. That's you unreal. Know, that's taken to another level in regards to sky replacements. But I think from a post-production point of view, my view in it is very, very simple, that every image is produced. There's no such thing as an image that's not. So I whoever on those high horses about you know producing images get off them. But moreover, I think you have to be very careful and selective in your post-production because we've said it before, people starting out, um, you know, Mark himself, Mark O'Brien had said when we were on the podcast and he's starting out is that the sliders would be all the way up, but now he's less is more and you can see the difference in regards to the image. So post-production, the minimum amount that you need for the image to be good, but to represent the scene that you saw as opposed to anybody else. That's my view in regards to it. What about you? I know I asked you to start, but any final thoughts on it? 
Um, very simple. Just keep doing what you're doing. As long as you're happy, that's the main thing. Like everything is production. Everything's produced. You are produced. I was produced. Life is produced. Cameras are produced. Food is produced. Everything is produced and in production. So why is anyone getting up in a high horse about uh, post-production? Look, just enjoy life. Just do what you want to do. I'm happy. You're happy. I'm Dermot. You're Darren. I'm out the gap. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you know what? On that note, we are going to end this episode, Dermot. So, yeah, thanks very much for joining me this evening. I hope you've learned a couple of things on both topics anyway. And I'd be interested to hear our audience's thoughts as well on both those topics themselves. Um, and any ideas and examples that you would like to share. Darren Lane, obviously, if you could share that image with SpongeBob Moon, that would be fantastic. <laughs> SpongeBob! And uh, yeah, so all that's left for me to say from here is thanks, Dermot, and Schlange Fall. Hey, hey, guys, if you dig what you're hearing, why don't you jump over to iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts? Give us a five star rating and don't forget to share with your friends. With all that done, we'll see you next week. And remember, keep shooting. <laughs>